hello again. Long time no see. And uh, Paul, you actually um, shortchanged me there. I actually had two meals today with uh, folks from the church. So I'm like a triple full Nelson. It's I was uh, I was saying you, you got to be careful because I might end up like you know, passed out on the side there with a sugar coma. It's really tough. But anyway, thank you guys for for sharing your your testimonies. You, uh, you know, uh, fellow missionaries, uh, and and my my bias is uh, that every one of us is a missionary because every one of us has been given a mission, and every one of us who's a Christian on a mission is a missionary. It depends on where you go. Uh, depends on what you do. It doesn't matter. We're a Christian on a mission. So we're all in that uh, boat, and, and we're all looking for the tool, and the tool is the Scripture. You know, what did, what did Paul say in Second Timothy? He said, you know, from infancy, uh, in uh, chapter uh, 3, verse like 14, he said, uh, sorry, that's, that's the page. I'm looking at the page in my mind. It's on the right-hand page, top side there. Um, I have a weird mind. I'm sorry. It's just it's a visual weirdness. But he says, you know, from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise into salvation, which is through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all Scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that what? That the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, the, you know, the equipment that we need uh, to, to reach the world for Christ is, is right there. So thank you for that, that encouragement. Um, as I was thinking this morning, actually, about uh, you know being introduced to you all and how uh, I should do that, I actually went to the uh, men's group. I told you I go, I go to the men's group, and uh, I asked them if they would uh, be willing to write something up that would uh, introduce um, uh, you know me to you. And, and so I, I I got a couple of those, and uh, I thought I'd read them to you and show you why I chose not to use them. <laughs> One said, I'd rather hear Jack preach than eat, and I've heard him do both. (laughs) One says, Jack's teaching is amazingly refreshing. Uh, When I wake up, I feel so great. (laughs) One said, uh, Jack's teaching is such that uh, we have a hard time getting someone to speak the month after he speaks uh, because he is so hard to follow. <laughs> really? Come on, guys. We've been talking about this amazing great commission that, uh, that we have, that God has given us, that, uh, that we, you know, said it this morning. Uh, when Jesus, just before he ascended, he gathered his, uh, his followers together on a, a little hillside and he said, listen, guys, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth, therefore go. And as you go and throughout the old world, make disciples of all nations. And that the word that all nations means all ethnic group. Every, every ethnic group in the world should have disciples, followers of Christ in it. And he says, you know, go make disciples of all nations and, and then teach, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And, and that is the great commission that we follow. And as we think of that great commission, in such an effort as ours, where our hearts burn for passion to see unreached people come to know the Savior who has not only changed our eternity, but changed our lives from futility uh, to purpose, from captivity to freedom. You know, we expose ourselves really to a couple of risks. 
Uh, and these risks are, are really on the polar opposite of success, uh, you know, whatever success in ministry looks like in a, in a worldly realm. Because on one extreme, uh, we have the, the temptation to believe that all of the struggles we face and all the lack of fruit and all the trials and all the temptations and all the, the, the problems we have are somehow indicative of a lack of effort or a lack of zeal or a lack of, of, of proper vision or proper planning. And nothing could be further from the truth. But on the other side of the, the spectrum is the, the temptation to, to believe that uh, uh, during times of unprecedented ministry fruitfulness that, that, that somehow uh, it's our brilliance, it's our foresight, it's our daring, it's our ability, it's our exemplary hard work that somehow are the critical factors that result in the ministry successes and fruitfulness that we see. And, and nothing could be farther from the truth there as well. Falling to the second temptation uh, can leave even Christ followers with a, a haughtiness, a pride, a, a self-absorption that renders an individual distasteful both to God and to the people who they are attempting to minister to, and, and it leaves the ministry un, unattractive to those we would like to reach. And if we've been around Christianity for any length of time, you, you've probably seen that happen. As we think about ministry fruitfulness, I, I want us to, to think about why that's there and tuck neatly into Paul's context of, of talking about why it is wholly inappropriate to, to uh, follow one teacher over another teacher. He, he throws in a little strange little verse in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when he says this, after all, what, what is Apollos? <laughs> what, is, what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned each his task. I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither is the one who plants nor the one who waters anything, but only God who makes it grow. And the phrase I want to talk about tonight, and I want us to concentrate on that one, only God. It's only God who does this work. And we're nothing. You know, every one of us are simply a, a tool. We're a hammer. We're a we're a na- we're a, a wrench in His hands. And, and we're simply trying to do what He wants us to do. Only God. The psalmist put it a, a different way in, in Psalm one twenty-seven. What did he say? He said, uh, "Unless the Lord what." Builds a house. They labor in vain who, who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman wakes in vain. It's, it's, it's of no value. You can do all the things you can, but, but unless the Lord builds it, it's, it's of no value. And that should not obviously demotivate us from the privilege and the responsibility of, of doing everything we can, giving maximum effort to the boldest possible vision. But on the contrary, it encourages us with excitement. It causes us to lay as much wood on the pile as we possibly can, the wood of our efforts and our strengths and our vision and our passion and our lives, and then to pray that God would light the fire and bring the ministry fruit. And it is only God who can do that. And for the time that we have left, I want to talk about some of the things that only God is able to do and is doing in the lives of some of our partners around the world. I want to introduce you to, to a bunch of them. And I want to say first thing, that only God is reaching people in dreadful circumstances using 
missionaries in dreadful circumstances. And I want to introduce you to a friend of mine, Iomi Pereira. Iomi is on the left there. I met Iomi about uh, oh, eight years ago or so. Uh, she became a WorldLink partner. But here's Iomi's story because she told it to me as we sat in Sri Lanka in a small, um, actually it was an apartment of a, of a friend. Iomi was a, uh, was a young woman in Sri Lanka in an, in an environment where there's not a whole lot of Christians. Uh, she had what she called a love marriage, which meant that it wasn't an arranged marriage. Most marriages there are arranged. Hers was a love, and she had married a young man named Clement. Clement was a, was a hard-working Christian young guy, passionate for God and passionate for his work and wanting to supply for his family, and he had saved as a laborer money up, and he got to the point where he was going to buy a small business. And the business he was going to buy was a little three-wheel scooter where he was going to be a taxi driver. And he had to saved up the money he was going to go do that. And, and the day came, and it was an amazing thing in their family, and they gathered everybody together to their little village, and Clement went off to, to get the, the money and to get the, the thing, and he was going to come back. And, and uh, as they waited and they waited and they waited, nothing happened. And it came dark, and then it came darker and he never showed up and then there was a knock on the door and it was the police. And here's what apparently happened. Clement went and took the train out of their village and went into the major city, into Colombo, in order to get the money and to get everything together. And then he got his train ticket in the, in the uh, uh, excitement of, of coming back out there. He hopped on the wrong train and he got on the express train that was going to pass by their village and would not come back. And he knew that if he did not get off, he could not be there that night when all the people were there waiting for him. And so apparently, because he wanted to save face, which is a huge thing in that culture, he decided to try to jump off the train. And uh, by jumping off the train, he lost his life. Iomi said, uh, when that happened, my world crushed. Uh, the, the, the world crumbled down and, and everything, even my relationship with God. I couldn't see God. I couldn't talk to God. I couldn't. Nothing was happening. It was like there was a wall between me and he. And, and for months and months, she said, why God? Well, you know, she had three young children, beautiful little kids. And, and for months she said, why God? Why have you allowed this? How could this happen? I, I can't believe. I can't follow you. And over the period of time, the, the healing of God's Spirit came into her life and she realized that God was who He said He was. He did what He said He did. And He brought the warmth of His Spirit and healing into her heart. And she realized that He is still a good God. And she said, finally, after months and months and months, I was able to go back to church. And she went back to church on Christmas of 2004 on the island of Sri Lanka. And she said, I went back with one question in my mind. God, okay, you've allowed me to be a widow in this environment where I'll never get married again because there aren't that many Christian guys and nobody's going to want to marry a, a woman with three kids. And so I, I'm now in this situation. God, how can you use me as a widow? And some of you know what happened on the next day in the Indian Ocean. The grand tsunami hit. And all of a sudden, Iomi was on an island with thousands and thousands of women who were now widowed, who had kids to bring up. And all of a sudden, she had a ministry opportunity to widows and orphans that was unprecedented. I went to one of these camps with her. And as we came in, we sat down and she gathered together all of these women. 
And I remember sitting with uh, Ravi Navaratnam, who was, uh, was a, an area contact there, and we sat, and, and, and as Iomi talked with the people and, and shared with the women what God had done in her life, uh, I, I listened to him translate it, because she was speaking Sinhala, and I don't speak Sinhala. Um, if you speak Sinhala, let me know. I'll be impressed. Um, but, but she was sharing how God had changed her life. And, and here's how sinful and weird and wicked that I am. I sat there listening to, to her sharing these things. And you know what went through my mind? I thought, I'm theologically trained. I've got this really good message on why God allows suffering. It's got points. It's got Bible verses. I mean, it's got, it's got all this stuff. And then I realized... Who in the world are these women going to listen to? If I ever tried to tell them how God can touch a suffering heart on the island of Sri Lanka, they would have looked at me like I had two heads. They'd say, listen, white guy, you don't know anything. You don't know suffering. You're about to get back on a plane and fly back to your lovely little environment. You don't know our life. And I realized, who will they listen to? Well, listen to Iomi, because she knows their life. She has been brought into a relationship with God with such amazing power that she is able to share out of the depth of her own suffering and dreadful circumstances. Let me introduce you to uh, Francis and Melvina. Francis and Melvina Bella live in, um, in the Central African Republic. Uh, which is a country of all places in, where would you guess? Central Africa. See, this is brilliant geography here. Their uh, young son, Esdras, is in the bottom right there. Take a look at him real quickly. Let me, let me uh, give you a little bit of Central African Republican history. Um, basically settled by, by nomadic herdsmen who were, who were going south uh, a thousand years ago during the, uh, the desertification of the northern, uh, you know, the southern Sahara. Uh, by the way, desertification is actually a word. It's where the desert comes down. I actually twice today practices, practiced desertification. It was... <laughs> but... The desertification was coming, and these herdsmen, you know, they needed, uh, you know, something to feed their people, so their, their, their herds, so they moved south, and ultimately they settled in this region, and they, uh, they became, you know, uh, agrarian societies, and they had their herds, and they had some, some lands, and they started to, to, uh, settle out as, as villages. And during that time, between the 16th and 19th century, actually Islamic uh, raiders came from the north, came down into that area, uh, began raiding the tribes and taking uh, slaves up into the, the, the north, selling them off into Arabia, selling them up into the, uh, to Europe. Uh, this went on for a while, and the other tribes started looking at this, thinking, wow, this is pretty lucrative. We think we'll get in on this thing. So they started uh, raiding each other and, and serving, you know, enslaving each other. And, and they, they decided, actually, the, 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 uh, uh, the Bobangi tribe decided that they're going to be the, you know, the corner of the market. And they started raiding people and taking them down the, the Bangi River to the, to the uh, I guess from your direction, it goes this way, uh, uh, out into the... Uh, uh, Atlantic Ocean and over into the Caribbean and up into the to the west uh, or the North America, 
Anyway, so, so this developed an animosity, a tribal animosity, which has you know, stayed through the years. Even after the French came in and, quote, colonized the area and then got kicked out, the, this tribal animosity continues to this day. And now, fast forward to today, you've got massive intertribal animus. You've got wars and rebellions and battles erupting regularly. You've got a, a broken economy. You've got a corrupt government. And you've got a fractured populace who, during these battles and wars, either has to take side, take covers or, or take off. And into that, I want to introduce you to Francis and Melvina. I met Francis uh, some years ago, and he became a WorldLink partner, doing incredible work for God. Um, it was about 12 years ago, and as a, as a result of, of his ministry, thousands of people have come to know Christ, sometimes in unplanned ways. A few years ago, he wrote me a, in his report, um, he, he talks about this, he says, uh, uh, we, we continue to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and deliver messages and teachings in churches that invite us. And on our journey back from Yaoundi, uh, our vehicle broke down in a village where we were stranded for five days. And I thought, oh, dude, what a bummer. He broke down in a, in, a, in a village in the middle of nowhere for five days. And then he wrote this next line. He said, this gave us the opportunity to thoroughly evangelize the village. <laughs> Thank God for almost 30 people who received the Lord as their Savior as a result of this ministry. Pray that the Lord may sustain them. Short time later, he sent me a picture of himself and a, a soldier named Placid. Placid's life was far from Placid. In fact, he... Uh, he uh, didn't know the Lord until uh, Francis came and talked to him. He, he gave him a Bible. He gave him that, that tool which was able to lead him to salvation in Christ Jesus. And this young man came to faith and then uh, immediately was, was uh, you know, uh, sent off to an outpost in the north. He lost track of, uh, of him for some months, and then Placid came back to Francis, and he said, listen, I want to tell you what happened. I was out in the, the, the bush area with my my unit and and we were attacked and and all of them were killed and I was only saved because I was able to escape into the forest and he said I think God has um has saved me so that I can tell others about the good news that you told me about so they kept seeing ministry success but ministry success is not without pain in uh, April of 2012 Francis and Melvina lived a day that uh, of horror that uh, no parent would like who has their 7-year-old son Esdras who I showed you earlier he woke up fine in the morning by by late morning he was feeling sick and by early afternoon he was dead likely of a disease that would have been easily treatable in our world but they don't live in our world he sent me a picture of the funeral and you probably can't see it, but on the bottom center there is the small casket of their their oldest son. As they went through this, they uh, they grieved, but uh, he said this to me, he wrote an email, he says, this sudden departure is extremely difficult for us to comprehend, but we keep going because God knows everything. We continue to faithfully serve the Lord. We do not subscribe to the customs of the CAR, which has a whole lot of witch doctors and all that kind of stuff going on. He said, because we belong to Christ, our village is 25 kilometers from the capital. We've got a cemetery there. We buried him worshiping our God and surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ. He continued to minister and throughout the brokenness of their, their lives, they continued to minister even when they were 
in dreadful circumstances. In, in October of 2013, the war in the CAR erupted again. All around them, battles raged, and in fact, the, the militia started coming toward their home, and they had to escape with nothing but the clothes on their back, but they did escape. But their home was burned. Their church was burned. All the things that they had were burned. And he wrote, he says, God has kept us so far from this sad situation of the rebellion. He says, activities in the capital, not to mention those in the interior of the country, have ground to a halt. Lack of electricity and water. Almost all administrative buildings, hospitals, and private companies have been looted. Continue to support us in in your prayer daily. He says, we live with the sound of weapons of all calibers and under the pressures of more than 3,000 rebels in our area. He says, my children, even the babies, are constantly frightened and sick. But all of this, he said, cannot prevent us from doing the work of the Lord. So what do you do when you're a, you're a refugee? And uh, now he's living in a school uh, that was taken over by about 1,000 refugees. What do you do? You, you become a pastor to the refugees. And there he's starting to lead Bible studies uh, with all the people. It's an amazing thing. They, for almost two years, they lived there, and he became the pastor for a thousand to fifteen hundred refugees living in a in a schoolyard. He sent a more recent photo. They had um, new children. They had two sets of twins, actually, for which he asked for prayer, which I can understand. Man. Last year, the uh, the fighting uh, started up again, and uh, he sent me some pictures of what's going on. They, they have another about 1,500 more people, about 2,500 people living now in this uh, old abandoned school. Uh, they're doing some feeding. How do you how do you house all them? There was an NGO that gave a tent. That's where everybody sleeps. And he wrote to me, and he said, uh, he said, Jack, listen, I. Uh, I want you to know that for, for me and my family, my wife and my five children and the three orphans that are under our care, we are fine by God's grace. The children are recovering gradually from this difficult situation. God continues to strengthen me personally, and I have the joy of serving in this new field. Here's a guy in dreadful situations, dreadful circumstances, but God is using him. God can use any of us to part, regardless of our circumstances. Some of the people that are reached are amazing. This young man, I, oh, this is, by the way, we bought uh, Francis uh, some projection equipment and, and some clothes and some other things, some Bibles to give out. Uh, that's, that's a clothing distribution that he's given to people who had to leave their home with absolutely nothing. They had to walk out because the, the militias were coming. Leaving with nothing is not a new thing. This is young man is named Samson. I met him in the Bauchi state of Nigeria, uh, working with one of our uh, indigenous missionaries. Samson told me his story, and I got it on, on a videotape. Samson and his family were sleeping one night in an area that uh, was being attacked by uh, Islamic militants, and they heard through the darkness the militants coming toward them. He said, we got up and we rushed out of the back of our small house, and we left, and we, we, we just went into the woods, and we hid far enough away where they could not see us, and we waited, and we watched them burn our house down. 
What they do is they throw, a, a, they call them fuel bombs, but they're Molotov cocktails. They throw them onto the thatch roof of the house and they watch it burn. And when it burns, it burns enough to where it falls down into the people who are in there. And if they decide to stay there, they burn to death. If they decide to run out, they get macheted to death. And so he was out watching this happening to, to their house. And, and he said to me this, he said, Uncle Jack, he said, we prayed that God would take the house out of our heart. I thought, how, how brilliant for a 15-year-old young man. But these are the people that are, that are being reached. I, I couldn't go to his house after that, but way I, I did go, and we saw the, the burned-out homes of, of other Christians, the burned-out churches. And, uh, and these are our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply. And yet God is working in those environments in incredible ways. Even in the darkness, God is working. Sandra de Ochoa on the right there is one of our partners in, uh, in Huehuetenango, uh, Guatemala. Uh, Huehuet is, is way, way up near the border of Mexico. That's how you can remember it. Uh, every time I, I go to Guatemala uh, up until this last trip, I was able to go up to CA Highway 1 up uh, the road up to, to Huehuetenango. But right now there's a, uh, there's a turf war between the Zetas and the, the Guatemalan uh, uh, warlords and drug lords. And they're, they're fighting out there. And so uh, I, we couldn't go up there. So uh, Sandra came down. We met in, uh, in Antigua. And she shared her report of what's going on there. Um, and I knew uh, that this was a heartbreaking report because a couple months earlier, uh, Sandra's uh, teenage son was, was murdered on the street corner. He had left the faith and left God and left the family, and he went and he got himself involved in one of the drug gangs. And apparently when he actually came back, was restored to faith, restored to the Lord and to his family, he came back. The drug gangs don't like, like to let you out. And so he was standing on the street corner talking to his father as a motorcyclist came up, stopped, shot him dead, and, and kept on going. And I talked to Sandra about this, and I, and I said, Sandra, it's, it's, it sounds awful there. It sounds dangerous there. I said, um, is it? And she said, it's, it, Jack, it's, it's darkness. It's just pure darkness. But God's working in the darkness. She said, because it is so dark, the light of the gospel is shining even brighter. And people are responding, she said, like never before in our ministry. When they go into the schools and they reach out to young children, they're responding to the gospel because of the darkness. God's working in the darkness. And they'll go in and they'll do uh, shows and they'll do puppet shows and they can do all kinds of things with the kids. They, they hand out relief work. God is working in the darkness. God is working in reaching people who have never heard through missionaries who have just recently heard, like us. These are the tea gardens of northern India. Uh, I was there uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, the, these ladies, by the way, they spend the entire day, the 12 hours out in the tea gardens in the heat. They do have one of the, the great benefits is they have a couple of trees every once in a while, but they, they go through the tea gardens, which look like a, like a, like a, just a lawn, but it's the top of tea plants and they walk through the rows and and uh, and they have these baskets on their heads they're hanging bags and they they pick the the wonderful little tea leaves and they put them in the bags and they they keep on going all day long they do that uh, one of the things that that happens at the end of the week they get paid uh, and they get four dollars for the week so as you as you drink your tea remember to pray for these ladies 
One of the interesting things is underneath the, uh, the canopy of the tea plants on the bottom where it's nice and cool and dark, uh, they get to walk because it's nice and cool there, which is great on the bare feet, but that's also where the snakes go. <laughs> so, so pick your poison. And actually they do. Uh, so We have uh, some of our partners are reaching out to these, to these ladies who are working hard. I'm going to skip through a, a number of these things and not give you, but the, the ever-present temples in, in northern India. But they'll go into these tea areas and they'll set up a small church. They'll lead a Bible study. They'll lead a few people to Christ. Then they'll get a home and someone will say, hey, I'll give you some property off the back of my house. And they, they'll set up a church like this. And then they'll start living out church life like you and I do. Paul Raj, as they live out life in India. Paul Raj is in the center there on the, on the, the middle row. He's one of our partners in Sathupali. You may notice uh, Sath, uh, Suku Thomas who's there. I introduced you to him this morning. Paul Raj is, uh, is one of the missionaries that go out into forested villages where Jesus has never been named. And uh, he told me uh, a short time ago, I said, so uh, Paul, what's happening in your ministry? Uh, what, are the, what are the big problems? And he says, oh, one of the villages I'm in, it's a really big problem. There, there's just like an uproar. And I said, oh, well, good, I specialize in uproars. What, what's, uh, what's going on? He said, I, I went into the village and nobody's, uh, you know, nobody knew Jesus. And so I met the first people. I talked to them and I talked to the next people. I talked to them. And he says, there were two brothers who were, who were really responsive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And over the course of several months, I came back to their house and I, I talked to them and talked to them and talked to them. And, the, and they came to faith in Christ. And it was a wonderful transformation in their lives. But they said as soon as that happened, there was an uproar in the village because these kids are the children, the only two male children of the local Pujaram. The Pujaram is the, is the witch doctor. He's the mayor. He's everybody's grandfather. I mean, he's the, he's the head of the village. And he said, he said, this is the problem. They knew that because these children now are followers of Jesus and they're, they're, they're not following their local gods anymore, he said they know that they're not going to have anybody to do the human sacrifices when the time comes for planting. Because in their mindset, just like the fear we had talked about uh, earlier, the, the, the mindset is that uh, the, the, the gods will be mad at us if we don't sacrifice. And if we're going to clear a, a place in the forest to, to plant some crops, we're going to have to sacrifice. And we're going to have to drive away the evil spirits. And the sacrifice they use is a human sacrifice. Now, it's illegal in India. You can't do it. But out in the forested villages, they do it anyway. Because who's going to tell? The... Biggest sacrifice, if you want to really appease the gods, is a pregnant woman. But he said now, because of these two young men, their life is being transformed in Jesus Christ. Now this village is starting to be transformed because they're realizing that they're not going to have anybody to make the sacrifices, so they better be thinking about what, what real God is all about. And he's starting to lead more and more and more people to Christ. Let me tell you a couple more stories. I'm going to block out a, a face, but uh, we have evangelists and church planters in Indonesia. I was there a little while ago and, and was talking to a team of people and I said, well, so how do you do this? You know, because I know Indonesian villages are very, very uh, parochial. They're, they're very closed. If you're not a member of that family, we don't know you. We don't let you in. So, so uh, they said, well, one guy says, well, I, I do this, I do this. One guy says, I'm a personal shopper. 
I thought, well, there's no Nordstrom's there, so what's, what's that all about? He said, well, I go up in the villages and I have a motorbike, so I drive up into the, the villages up in the mountains. And I say to them, hey, I have a, a, a motorbike. Is there something you need in the town? And they, one guy says, well, I need a shovel. He says, great, I'll buy you a shovel. One says, I need a shirt. He says, great, I'll buy a shirt. You know, one needs, so he goes down, he buys those things, he comes back, and he said, uh, if the, if the shovel was a dollar, I, I don't charge them a dollar, I charge them ten cents a week for ten weeks. Because that gives me ten opportunities to come back and talk to them. And hopefully over the course of that time, they get to know me, I get to know them, and they get to know Jesus. So God is working with people who, who just recently come to know Christ. They have a passion for Him. They become missionaries. They can be trained as we go. And it's a wonderful thing. Now I know we're kicking time, right? We're on African time already, or are we yet? Yeah. So the missionaries are saying, go for it. They're just saying, keep at it, buddy. So, yeah, not a problem. Let me tell you about one more uh, person, and I'm going to skip Dorcas now. Maybe I'll get her next next week. Dorcas has got an incredible story. By the way, there's there's another one of those uh, Sesame Street pictures. Can you pick me out? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Yeah, the shirt. Yeah, the orange shirt. Okay. This is, oh, this is one of my favorite pictures of kids there. They're in a, a little uh, village called Malvivi in uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And they're, they're basically looking at going, what is that thing that has that camera? <laughs> I've never seen one of those before. Keep on going. Oh, this is Shankar. I want to tell you his story. We'll, we'll leave it with this one. I met Shankar about uh, four years ago. Um, we, we, in, in uh, India, we went to a, a, a village where one of our workers was, and we, we uh, wanted to uh, uh, build a children's home. And so he, there was a small church there, and uh, there was a piece of property next to the church that was available. So we were able to raise the $3,000 to buy this, this hunk of property next to the, the church, and we are going to build a, a children's home. And one of the things you need for children, if you can have a bunch of children's homes, is some decent water. There was no water, you know, available in the area, so uh, we, we raised a little money to uh, about thirty-five hundred dollars to to dig a, a bore well. And so we we uh, dug the bore well, and uh, and uh, when I came uh, and we you know prayed over the bore well, and uh, and then the next day um, Shankar came back. Over, he, he's, he, he said, uh, you know, can, can I talk to you through? He was speaking uh, Telugu, and he, he talked to the, the local leader, and he said, you know, we were sitting in his, you know, hut, and he said, you know, can can I talk to this man? And he said, of course. So I went out to talk to him. He said, listen, I, I want you to know something. He says, I've lived in this village all my life. I've lived right here all my life, and I've seen lots of people on this property. And he said, many times they've tried to dig water on this property, and every time they've never gotten any water. Uh, but you guys came, and you prayed, and you dedicated this to your God, and you got water. He said, I, th- I think that's a miracle. And I said, that may be. <laughs> he said, I think your God is powerful. And I said, well, that's true. <laughs> and I said, I said, keep looking, because 
the powerful God that you're talking about is going to do some amazing things on this very property. So over the course of the next couple of years, there was a children's home built, and, uh, and many children's and orphans and abused kids are now living on that home. And Shankar, from his hut next to the property, kept looking and looking and watching the local indigenous missionaries working. And he had seen you know, us praying. He had seen the water flowing that uh, never had happened before. There's the, the children's home that's now built there. Ashanalayim means house of hope. Well, I went back in uh, November of this year, and they had a baptism there on the property. And to my surprise, one of the men who came forward to be baptized was, was Shankar. And I asked him, what, what, what led you to this? And he had been watching over these years. He'd been watching these Christians and what they were doing and how they were ministering and how they were loving children in an environment where nobody really cares for the children and how God was working and how powerful He is. And he learned not only about the power of God, he learned about the love of God and the salvation of God. And so now he's a, he's a believer. This is his, his house next to uh, there, and you can't really see it real well, but I'll tell you that there are some pictures over their head, and those pictures, one of them is of Jesus. And it's a white Jesus, but you know, you, you forgive us for that. So these guys have, uh, have now come to faith in Christ and are, are following him. I'm going uh, to stop there. I'll throw some more of these in there. But basically, what I want you to know is that God is working through desperately hurting people and reaching desperately hurting people. God is reaching with His confirming power in the lives of people. And God is reaching out through people like you. Because we are all missionaries. Whether we're missionaries here or missionaries in some other part of the world, whether we're frontline people or whether we're support people, it doesn't matter. Because we're all on a mission together. We're a part of the team. And so my encouragement is to ask the question, are you a missionary? And so this is what I want to do as we, as I close out. Let me ask you the question. You got asked, stand if you've been on a mission trip. Here's what I want to ask you to do. Stand if you're a missionary. The worship team comes and going to sing our theme song again, I think. I would say, yes, you're right. We're all missionaries if we're a Christian because we've been given a mission. Now let's decide to go do it because all over the world there are people who have never heard the name of Jesus and the task is unfinished that we face. So let's see if we can finish it. All right?